This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Hi, I'm Paul Harding, and I am the author of the novel This Other Eden. In the early 1900s, residents of Malaga Island off the coast of Maine were forcibly evicted by the state, and some were sent to the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded. This is true. Paul Harding's novel, This Other Eden, is a fictionalization of this island and its interracial inhabitants, descendants of a former slave and his Irish wife. I recently spoke with Paul Harding about how artifacts like photographs set off his imagination, some of the history behind the eugenics movement, and how he aims to write books that are meant to be reread. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Paul Harding. Okay, so can you give our listeners a description of the book? A sort of very sketchy description is the novel is concerned with a group of characters who are living on an island off of the coast of New England in the early 20th century, 1912 to be specific. And the novel opens essentially on the eve of the community there, which is a racially integrated community. The novel opens on the eve of them learning that they are going to be evicted from their homes on the island. And then the novel sort of spreads out from there and talks about the history of the people and the different characters um, and how they got to the island and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very loosely based on historical events that happened on an island called Malaga Island off the coast of southern Maine. I actually read maybe two or three articles about that specific place, those specific events. And the basic plot of what happened to those folks laid such claim to my imagination that I actually stopped immediately once I realized that I wanted to write about them. I started research because I didn't want it to be an historical novel per se. I didn't want to use actual people. I just wanted to you know use those circumstances and invent characters and put them in and so that I could have you know full free play of the imagination with certain other particularly literary traditions that immediately came to mind when I read about those circumstances. So talk to me about this, because this was based on something real that happened, but how does fictionalizing the story with these nuanced characters and family, what does that do for the history, for readers with learning the history? Yeah, well, I think these things are complicated. I mean, I think this is often... (laughs) Um, something that fiction writers have to think about, you know, because pretty much everything comes from real life, you know? And so what fiction is, is, you know, it's an art form in which you take direct experience, whether it's personal or, you know, historical, whatever, and, you know, you subject it to the imagination and coming up with, again, in my case, it's literary fiction. So what occurs to me is other literature, um, also visual arts and all that sort of stuff. But it is, it, it's just always an issue. I mean, it took me nine years to write the book, 10 years to write the book. And you have to think about that with every sentence. The spirit of the thing that you're going for is that you're trying to write something that's true. It's just not factual, right? You know, that it is imaginatively true. And so you do have to always be thinking about 
you know, what is public domain? What is American history? What is, you know, New England history? What is, I mean, one of the things that struck me about this is that it was so, you know, the the scale of the story and the setting on an island is just, you know, perfect for a fiction writer because it's a you know, small, very localized setting. You can have, you know, a small cast of characters, but then the predicament that they're in to me just kept resonating out with like, oh, this is, you've seen this a lot in New England. You see this a lot when you go up into like Nova Scotia and up into, you know, Canada. I mean, one of the things that struck me is when I, you know, sort of first found out about Malga in particular, it came over the wire in a Google search that had dozens and dozens and dozens of other places that had gone through almost the same kind of situation, you know, and subsequently I've been on book tour, pretty much every place I go, people come up to me after the readings and say, you know, when I was growing up, there was this town, there was this place, and, and, you know, either one for one way or another, usually bad things befell these towns. And, you know, so just the idea of displacement, specifically American version of what happens to racially integrated communities, um, how they just essentially, it's very difficult for them to persist, to survive. And then I teach Shakespeare, I teach the Old Testament. And so then you go all the way back to Eden, you know, the whole idea of displacement and not just Eden, you know, but throughout the entire, particularly the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, you have the book of Exodus, you have people that are being displaced and are continually like setting up camp and then being forced to move along. And so again, you go from this very, very specific localized version of what then, as I kept running it through other literary traditions and other history, felt quintessential, felt perennially human. And so as a novelist, that's gold, you know, when you can get something that's very, very local, very almost infinitesimal, small, intimate, but it keeps breaking open into the larger, you know, universal history or breaking into kind of the infinite, as it were. I want to talk a bit about what was happening to these people, the, you know, the eugenics that was happening in the United States. And a historical aspect of the novel was the role of Leonard Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's son. How did Leonard Darwin interpret his father's theories in scientific findings? Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, you just have with eugenics, it's just, it's so, the other thing that this kind of scenario presented too was a really, really interesting way to sort of let your imagination work with the current and ongoing kind of false dilemma between religion and science, because I'm interested in both. And then in the case of eugenics, it really let me imagine and elaborate on the, you know, the fact that that science is as vulnerable as any other human idiom or discipline to being abused, to, to just misadventure and, and and abuse. And so in the case of eugenics, eugenics just proves to be age-old bigotry, racism, you know, prejudice against people with the supposed imprimatur of science. But really what it is, is it's just like subjecting people to, you know, the calipers and the rulers and just trying to quantify the value of different human lives, which is, I think that's the most dehumanizing thing is just the idea of just like, that's a way of objectifying people. You know, the quality of being human is qualitative. 
eugenics had this posture or this conceit that you could quantify it. You know, eugenics, what makes a good human? You have to define what you think a human being is first. Then you have to define what a good human being is. And so it's basically like, oh, it's all us white guys. You know what I mean? In, the, in their case, you know, and then everybody else then is just, you know, that becomes the norm, right? And then everything else is deviant or queer or whatever, you know, whatever. You just start getting that language of, you know, marginalization, as it were. And again, this all, you know, just spending years thinking about this and just thinking about, oh, that, you know, this idea of being on the margins or being marginalized says who, you know, the people who say another set of people are marginalized, they're just saying it from their own point of view. I was thinking, if you lived on an island and you're one of these people, you'd be like, y'all live on my margins. You know, we're the center. We are the center of our own experiences. We are the subjects of our own families and of our own selves and our friendships and our community. So you live on our margin, you know. Um, and I think that's where with the one of the main characters, a woman named Esther Honey, who I think of as kind of a prophet, this is something she's very, very aware of. I was able to, I just sort of gave her a lot of that, the same stuff I was thinking about chew on and like you open her intelligence to this stuff. And she's just very, very prescient. She really sees the writing on the wall. She's, you know, just when the mainlanders come to the island from, you know, the, the marginal mainland, the mainland's marginal to them. She knows their days are numbered. Are you finding um, that readers are, learning or discovering the, about this history that they didn't know before? Yeah. And I think that that actually goes back to the question I asked earlier, which is that I think something that is always important to keep in mind is that this book is not meant to be the last word on that island. In fact, technically, it's not even the first word on the island because I fictionalized everything, you know. There's been criticism about, you know, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. I didn't get it wrong because it's not a, you know, <laughs> it's I made up different things about it. So, again, it's not meant to be the last word about that island because it's not about, you know, again, you, you be careful because I wrote about it. It was inspired by it. But, you know, if you think of it almost like as a tapestry, you know, 15 percent of the wool that goes in it. You can recognize things from Malaga Island, but the other 85 percent, there's tons of stuff from my own family history. Um, there's tons of stuff from, again, all sorts of other literary and artistic sources that I really wanted to, you know, you put it in the big cauldron and see what you get. It's kind of experimental in that way. But part of the idea, the spirit of the thing is that people will hear the name Malaga, you know, and what they will do is then they will turn and then they will find the history of the real island. Right. The other thing, too, that I think would be fantastic is if somebody wrote a history of the island. Right. I was not the right person to do that. You know, so, again, it got a hold of my imagination and it haunted me. And I, I just was thinking, oh, my God, what would it be like to be just sitting? I mean, it's a novel. She just starts with very literal, like, what would it be like to be just sitting there and seeing the boats come across? You know, just really that gut level lived experience kind of thing. That's what I sort of grabs me. But again, I, I didn't want to write the history of it because I just, you know, I don't have anything to do with that community. I, I, I didn't go up to the island. I didn't do any of the research that way. I wanted it to be sort of like, you know, I'm, I, you know, I take responsibility. I take the blame and the credit, you know, I mean, and this is another thing about when I think about, you know, writing a novel, I think why bother writing a novel if I'm going to put anything less than everything at stake, right? So you're going to be writing about stuff that is not going to just smooth everybody's fur. Or if you're writing about 
the history of race in you know in this country and it's ongoing some people like to put it in the you know but it's it's pretty raw it's really really and so you know i don't expect anybody to hold a parade for me. you know you if you want to go into this stuff and really you know you'd write it in good faith but the minute that book goes out of your hands and into publishers and editors and all that a certain cover is put on it certain jacket copy is put on it it's spun in a certain way certainly what publishers love because they it's you know what marketing loves is based on a true story or anything like that because people have that sense that oh if something like that really happened that just people think it makes it more compelling you know so you just write the best book you can you put it out in the world and you try to in every interview you just say this is just one book other people will come to it. Other people will come to Malaga Island. In the fullness of time, they will write their book about Malaga Island or about the community that they know. And it would be beautiful if this book just was part of a entire library about the subject of Malaga in particular, but also just the subject in general, you know, just contributing to the America's dialogue with itself about all of these issues in its history. Let's talk about race, because one of your characters, Ethan Honey, Mm -hmm. he's a very gifted young man. His drawings impress the missionary school teacher who comes to the island every summer. But there are other gifted children who are overlooked and he doesn't speak up on their behalf because the teacher doesn't believe they will pass as white. Now, was this all fictionalized? Was this part of what you read or was this something you fictionalized where people helped and forwarded based on the way they looked rather than, you know, their minds? So my, <laughs> the real answer is I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I, again, I still don't know the history particularly, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so now I'll look deeper into the history now that I'm, you know, but but what the, one of the most compelling actually aspects of the couple of articles I read, and the one that was really most influential was the article in Down East magazine from like 1980. And it was the pictures, there were photographs that I subsequently learned since the publication of the book, they were taken by missionaries who were mm-hmm. there, you know, with, you know, not good intentions, which is interesting because one of the things I was thinking about with the, you know, just initially was just like, why were those pictures taken? Because the kind of camera you'd have in 1912, you're not just, you know, you didn't just canoe over and you're not just taking snapshots of these people, you know. So one of the first photographs I, that struck me was a photograph of a, a, a older woman holding what looked like was maybe a, a couple of her grandchildren in her lap. She's in like a rocking chair or kind of like a Windsor chair or something like that. And I just you know, sort of, just you know, I love photographs, especially old photographs. Um, my first novel, Tinkers, is based on a lot of my photographs of my family um, that are like basically tin types. They're like daguerreotypes. They're that old. And so I was like, oh, more old pictures. And so I thought of this woman. I thought, what are you thinking as this picture is being taken? And I just did this, the free play of the imagination. In my imagination, I sort of walked over to her and turned around and imagined what she was, who she was seeing, what she was looking at, and just thought, oh, that's not good. There's some people there that, you know, and then eventually get up, the, get up the, you know, the nerve to sort of say, what are you, what are you thinking? What are you making of this? And, you know, kind of the first basic idea was her saying, get off my island. I don't want these people here. These people don't. But with Ethan Honey, the boy who is artistically gifted and presents as white, 
that all kind of came out of um, there was a school on Malaga. And there, one of the photographs in that article is of a bunch of the school kids. And they present all the way from white Caucasian to black, you know, full palette of skin tones and colors. So, I mean, that in itself was just striking. I was like, that's 1912. And that's a bunch of kids of different, you know, races, so-called races, you know, just skin tone. And they're all going to the same school together. And so it just, you know, I just thought, what would happen if you had a missionary who just thought, maybe I can quote unquote, save one of these kids. And the most likely one would be not the one who was gifted because there are a bunch of gifted kids. It's the one who had a gift, but also could pass pass away into the white world, as it were, you know, that just came about also sort of by chance with the fact that as I was trying to conjure the novel, kind of an early stage of conjuring the novel, I was writing a scene that was set in the eponymous town of my second novel, Enon. I was just fiddling around with a character who in Enon is probably an octogenarian. And I thought, what if we went back to her house when she was like 10 years old? What was going on? And then eventually I was thinking about painters and painting because I'm always thinking about painters and painting. And I came across an African-American painter from the 19th century named Charles Ethan Porter, who did landscapes and still life. One of his most compelling landscapes is of a big meadow. The hay has just been mowed. And I thought that's kind of what's going on in my Enon scenes and thinking about this, this woman when she was a girl and she's having a picnic or something like that with her family. So it's as simple as, and modest as this. I, I was like, I don't know, but that guy is painting that meadow. And so I just plunked him in the far distance of the scene. And some of the characters would say, who's that guy? <laughs> and they'd say, I don't know. Dad brought him up. We don't know. Then when I found out about Malaga, I thought, oh, well, what if there's an African-American, you know, like a black guy who's painting well, what if he presented as white? What if he was a young kid? And then that's how I got this whole, there's this big kind of interlude, big section of the of this other Eden that goes to that fictional town of Enon. It's a sort of story within a story about a little uh, kind of a love affair between these two young people, little Romeo and Juliet, little star-crossed, which to my mind, this isn't a spoiler, to my mind, I didn't even realize it until I, like the book was published and I looked at it and I said, that's this other Eden. You know, these young people have this Edenic kind of very, very brief, you know, people need to remember that in the Bible, Eden, the paradise of Eden lasts for about four hours. <laughs> it lasts for about like an afternoon. Like they're no sooner there than like, you're out, get out. Um, and so there's anything about that, you know, the book sort of inhabiting that kind of thing. But I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking about like, what's the scene like? What's it like when they make lemonade? Where do they get the ice, you know, as a novice you're kind of thinking on that kind of sentence level of just like the real kind of concrete literal experiential stuff for the characters well you know you mentioned like seeing a photo and trying to assume that woman's perspective and esther's perspective and in yeah. your in your books you know you tell stories through fluid timelines you know perhaps yeah. revealing lives through their past i'm thinking of tinkers for this one you you know you bring in documents or or you might have a description of a piece of art that's in an exhibit or you might have a segment of a speech um how do you choose which perspective and form is the best yeah. way to tell a story at any given time 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, partly it starts from like the most kind of generic version is I want to have different perspectives. I want to have different voices. I want to have different textures, different keys, you know, that you hear voices. Partly that's just variation. It's just, you know, working kind of almost like a musician would, you know, with different tempos and keys and counterpoint and all that sort of stuff. So basically, I start off just thinking, I want to use every single point of view in the whole world that I possibly can. And then that's kind of why it takes me eight or 10 years to do these things, because I just spend years just sifting through, you know, generating different things and experimenting and saying, what if this goes here and that goes there? What does that do? You know, how, how do these things work off each other? And in this case, what ended up happening is I realized the book is just about the human people, the characters that are on that island. They are the subject. And you realize... A lot of times that like a book can be a protest against something that you hate by virtue of it not privileging that as its subject. You know, I realized that the best way I thought, you know, aesthetically, the best way that the book would work would be if it's a 225 page book, 200 pages are just being with the characters living their daily lives, that sort of thing. And then then I started realizing that when the point of view has to do with any of the islanders on the island, they are given the very best language, the most humanizing language, the deepest, most thoughtful, richest narrative that you can get that is just subordinated to them being subjects, just doing justice to what it's like to be them, right? And then the minute you get off the island and you start reading the kind of documents that are, people are writing about them or generating about them or the newspaper articles from the quote mainland, right? Who's mainland, whatever, <laughs> that sort of thing. Then I was able to just, you just let the, the language just becomes degrading and you watch the process by which through language, these people are dehumanized and they are objectified and they are turned into insurable, terrible slurs that you can imagine and, you know, that's a way of sort of seeing the process of dehumanization, but spending most of your time with the people who are the human beings who are suffering this. So the whole book is about just like the human cost of what happens, you know. It's one of those things where very early on I realized that it emphasized too much the violence and the terrible things that happened to them. It would be sensationalistic. It would be lurid, which would dehumanize the characters, right? Also, just in the way that you handle that, you have to be very careful because the subject of the book can't be the reader's righteous indignation on behalf of the islanders because it's not about the reader. It's about the characters, you know, just so that idea of just like insisting on it's just about the characters. That is what this book is about. That's the true subject. And by virtue of keeping it there and only and showing these flashes from outside, that in itself is a protest against any other narrative that would subject them to you know, the whims of somebody else, as it were, you know. So in this other Eden, some of the some of the residents of the island are evicted. Well, they're all evicted, but some are sent to the main school for the feeble minded. And in your first book, Tinkers, which I need to mention, won the Pulitzer, you also, you feature the Eastern Maine State Hospital. It's the Northern and Eastern Maine's care facility for the insane and feeble-minded. What about this type of institution captured your interest? Well, it sort of went, you know, hand in hand with the eugenics and the whole idea of like who 
who is considered feeble-minded, who is considered subhuman or or strange or what, you know, what what's the criteria for saying a person belongs in this place? And in the case of Tinkers, it was, you know, and, and this was based on actual family history where my great, one of my great grandfathers, my, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather's father was going to be sent there because he had epilepsy, right? And so that was another thing is that, you know, when I saw that these one of the families on Malaga in this article, you know, said that one of the, you know, everybody's evicted, but this one family that was sent to the main school for the feeble-minded, that was another point of contact. Just like that just was sort of like another green light kind of went on. I thought, oh, this is, you know, this idea of being institutionalized and why you're institutionalized and why you are, you know, it's a kind of, um, you know, it, it, it it's a kind of incarceration, you know. And even the idea that, like, at first, when they are the people were on the island, it was sort of like a sanctuary, and it eventually became almost like a holding pen. It became they it became a, like a minimum because they couldn't get off the island because of the prejudice that they would meet when they left. So just thinking thinking about Noah's Ark, that's great. But what if you were on Noah's Ark and you couldn't get off the Ark? What starts happening, you know, and uh, you know, so all the things w- for which they are then blamed are the the consequences of the life that you know the situation that they're forced into in the first place. You know, they don't get to determine themselves, as it were. You know, so just thinking about that and just like institutionalization, which is you know, hop, skip, and a jump from the prison system and the way that you know the prison system whatever we could go into, you know, from Jim Crow to prisoner work labor to, you know, the just kind of like the industrialization of prisons and who is kept there, all that sort of stuff. That's the thing is, it's just one unbroken history, you know, um, from, from my reading of all of this. And so that's another thing, is it just this one small local group of characters just kept finding ways that they are connected to these much larger currents and traditions you know if you want to call them that you know in american history of of how people like you know people who are not considered normal or whatever how they're treated by the country and by the country's government okay so tell me if i get this wrong you are the director of the mfa program in creative writing and literature at stony brook university as you mentioned, you teach Shakespeare, you teach the yeah. Bible. Do you think yeah. working with students affects your writing? Oh, absolutely. I, I you know, when, when I was younger, I, you know, something that drove me crazy was I was like, if I'm going to become a writer, probably the only thing, well, I, was, I wasn't that young when I got an MFA. I was like 33, that kind of thing. But I didn't like it when I heard writers say, oh, I don't like teaching. I try to spend as little time on it as possible because it ruins that precious part of my brain that I devote to writing. And I just thought, I can't do that. I want to be a really, really good teacher. I want to be a first-rate teacher. I want to be able to teach anybody who comes through over that threshold and sits at my seminar table, wherever they're from, whoever they are, whatever they're trying to write, I want to be able to help them make whatever they're doing better. And so one of the things I just did was I just I sort of like just deliberately set out about like removing the partition in my brain and my thinking between myself as a writer and myself as a teacher and eventually just myself as me like this is just how I am in the world so that you know it's just like practice you can't go out and just run a marathon you have to you know stay in shape but just like keeping trying to keep my brain and my consciousness kind of 
pitched at the level where I could write, like I could sit down and just start writing anywhere, anytime. I could sit down and start teaching writing anywhere at any time. Because when you're teaching other people, it's at least with the fine arts anyways, when you're teaching other people, you're just teaching yourself. You're keeping yourself sharp, you know? And so it becomes this kind of beautiful sort of feedback loop, like in a circuit or something like that. So it makes me a better teacher. It makes me a better writer. You know, if you spend too much time by yourself as a writer, which is a danger, you <laughs> you can end up with the, uh, what I would call sort of like the Ipse Dixit version of knowledge, which is just like, oh, that must be true by virtue of the fact that it occurred to me. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're sitting there with like Hamlet and you've got 12 really, really smart, very, very, very attentive ad students listening to what you're saying and thinking about what you're saying, you can't just you know, you have to really put yourself on the line because they'll know if you're, you know, BSing them or not. So it's great. I just, you know, there's no just like air on the side of just being generous and being like, yeah, I'll do an office hour whenever you want. I'll talk with you on Saturday. I just don't care. It's all just you try to make it just coextensive, you know, just how you are in the world. So with this paperback release, you'll have a whole new audience. Do you have a hope for what readers will take away from the book? I well, you know, just that's funny. You should ask <laughs> um, because I don't. When I write a book, when I put it in the world, I don't think of it in terms of like a message or a takeaway or a point. Partly because just for the simple reason that I feel like if people like read my book for getting a message or a point, if they feel like they got the message, they never have to look at the book again. I like the idea that people go through and they feel like, whoa, that was a real experience. Something just happened. I'm not quite sure what. And, you know, the, and the ideally they loop back and they start looking at it again. So it's experiential. It's supposed to be, you know, I just take this from Shakespeare's plays or from the Bible, which is that whatever I want to start, you know, resonating, you know, these ideas, this history, the, you know, the art, all that sort of stuff that I want to reverberate. I don't want it to ever stop reverberating. I don't want it to be like a dead letter, you know? Um, so, and I really think of the, re you know, I always think of like, one of the things I say to my students all the time is don't, first of all, don't write your books for the people who won't like them. You know, that's the beautiful thing is that like, it, you can take it or leave it. I mean, if you don't like it, don't read it. I certainly don't like a lot of literature and do want, you know, like, just have, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean we can't go have a beer somewhere <laughs> afterwards, but you know, so there's that, but then the people who will like it, you, cause you don't want to shortchange them. You don't want to pull any punches with them. So the people who would love your book, you go all in for them so that from the first sentence to the last, they feel like that author respected me. That author did not betray my trust that author paid me the deepest courtesy and respect as another human being or who has a brain that they use for themselves you know that sort of thing um and i didn't because i feel like a message too can be it can lapse into like propaganda like the especially when you're talking about how people demean and dehumanize one another or whatever you don't want to coerce you know the whole thing is like you don't want to coerce people into you know um so the idea of just like i just tried to make it as rich and as complex in a way that at least resembles what it's like to be a human, like that felt experiential kind of level and have people go through it and, and not feel like they're being coerced into a certain 
reading of the story that you know you want to give that 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 kind of richness and complexity is a kind of generosity i think uh, you know that's just like you, you go through it just you go through it just go through the book and see what what happens literature is like the only art form i can think of where people sort of say yeah i read that book once one of my favorite books nobody says that about their favorite record nobody says that about their favorite movie nobody says that about their favorite painting you know oh yeah you know uh, you know, whatever, insert your favorite album. Like, oh yeah, I listened to that once. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's like a checklist. Like you just, I read the book to check it off a list. My favorite books, uh, you know, everybody has their own personal canon, right? And the one that be, are the ones that you're just like, I I haven't read Absalom, Absalom in three years. I'm going to read it again. And, I, and every time I read it or whatever, you know, insert your favorite book. Every time I read it, it gives me something. And it, the, it's the opposite things, you know, the opposite whatever the opposite of um, familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know something, the more you know a work of, say, music, the more you love it. And so knowing what happens is not where the the art occurs, you know, where your relationship with these books that... So you want to try to write, anyways, books that will that will reward a lifetime of reading and thinking about, you know, and the thinking, it can't ever be a dead letter. It can't ever be wrote. You have to kind of be live and present and participating, you know, again and again and again, it's always there because it needs reconsidering and reiteration. The whole time you were talking, I was just thinking about how I never reread books unless it's assigned to me. I just finished up. I, I got a, a, an English degree because my first degree was in business, and I just finished that up this semester. And I found I would have to reread something because it was assigned. But I never I, – I don't know if I just don't have the time. Um, it's probably it's probably somewhat that – I mean, when, when I was younger, when I was like worked in bookstores, I read everything that came. I don't think you could do that now because I think a trillion more books are published mm -hmm. a year, but I read everything, you know, and, and and then just again, as I, it probably started to happen too when I became a teacher, you start rereading things mm -hmm. because you're teaching them out. And as you're, as a writer, you're, you're, you go back to those books that blow your mind and break your heart. And you think, how do they do that? I want some of that for myself. <laughs> like, we were talking about Hamlet last night in my in class, and somebody was just saying, you know, that there's a scene in Hamlet where he's like in the graveyard, and the grave diggers are there, and he's looking at, you know, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, you know, the, the skull and all that sort of stuff. It was just like, I just think that scene is really cool. And I said, I think it's so cool that I made it the fourth part of this other Eden. Like there's a little coda at the end of this other Eden that is a bunch of grave diggers digging up the graves. You know, that's another thing. Like I knew that it happened historically, factually. And I was like, imagine the poor souls that they got to dig those graves up, those poor souls <laughs> out of their graves, you know? And you just think, oh, what the, you know, just that is just gold, you know, just, I just wrote another version of that, the grave digging scene from Hamlet makes sense this other eden is a line from richard ii esther honey loves her shakespeare so you know again it's that feedback loop it just keeps you know so you go back and you reread hamlet as it were and you say wow that's how he did it i think i'm going to try to do it that way too you know that was paul harding author of the book this other eden which was published by norton Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. 
Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.